Hailed by many as the greatest American movie ever made, Orson Welles' debut film is a technical and artistic triumph, showcasing his acting ability and creative vision. As a commentary on great wealth and media power as a vehicle to high society, but not to close relationships, Citizen Kane set the standard and remains a timeless classic. After giving an update on our society's current bizarre relationship with media spin and mob behavior, we delve into our takes in this After Dark episode on whether we personally found a connection with the themes of the film and the main character himself. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Myth of the 20th Century. I am Hans Launder, and today I am joined by my three co-hosts, Mr. Hank Oslo, Mr. Adam Smith, and Mr. Nick Mason. How are you, gentlemen? Uh, pretty good. comfy. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to uh, belabor the rumor mill because I, I have no hard evidence to substantiate any of this stuff but I, I just feel remiss not commenting on the continued destruction of the american uh city or what's left of it at the moment i was uh i was sort of sharing this with my co-host i have i have a few working theories and of course it could all just be random and you know uh those blacks being those blacks but if you want to get conspiratorial for a moment, and that's the sort of uh, gist of our show, I feel remiss not giving an update on my latest in the thinking. Um, so, obviously, election year, you know, that's that's the, the most obvious possible thing. They're trying to make Trump look bad. I don't actually think that's working, though. Um, second one is, this is some way, and I mentioned this before, that they're trying to federalize more of the policing or frankly not even federalize it that's probably not the best way to put it it's imagine metal gear solid 4 but in real life where the only people who have access to protection services are the people who can afford that and actually it was uh, hotep jesus who actually made this same observation or, or thought today if i'm not mistaken uh basically if you take the uh police away who who are the people who are going to be able to afford the new police uh so that's that's the second idea uh and then and this is a fantasy at this point in my life but there may be an attempt to actually make people so fed up with the difficulties in race relations that people just want to throw their hands up and actually separate now i don't think that's actually going to happen with the incentives for globo homo being what they are to want to continue making money uh, on a global marketplace and tapping into labor pools and 
destabilizing nation states so that nobody competes with them or throws up any uh, any of those uh, annoying tariffs that they have to work around. But uh, that is another possibility. So if you guys have any thoughts on this, I mean, some of you are more more affected directly by this than I am. I'm fortunate enough to live uh, in somewhat of a rural area where uh, I don't think I've seen a person of color in a while. So, um, but I won't hold my breath for that staying that way forever. But how are you guys handling all this stuff? I'm just enjoying the the schadenfreude of seeing uh, all the woke uh, progressives uh, who are all abolish the police, man. It's like, ah, well, see, when we say abolish the police, what we really mean, and then going full like Nancy Pelosi, like cornering, uh, cornering strategy, just seeing their, seeing their dreams crushed is like, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, the Bernie moment every four years, but we get a repeat uh, this cycle. I mean, I, I got I got a chance to see some of these protesters up close uh, on Saturday. I was walking around, actually walking back from having like a nice little uh, afternoon cafe time, and um, now that the cafes are open. And uh, I saw these two like really weird fat white women, had to be in their mid thirties, um, <laughs> carrying. Well, I assume because they were on this like private little bicycle path that cuts through the neighborhood. Uh, I you know they were carrying signs. They looked pretty like sunburned and sweaty, and uh, you know I got I got to see the enemy up close, basically. Um, you know. On some level, I don't even care anymore. I'm perfectly content to let these people burn their own cities down. Um, I think Jacob Frey, the um, like five foot one um, millennial who runs Minneapolis, I didn't realize like that 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 was the man who ran one of the biggest cities in the Midwest. Um, yeah, every time I see him, I think he's like Justin Trudeau's uh, little little. Yeah boy or something yeah like little gay lover or something um or doppelganger but yeah so he you know he i think he came out and basically said that minneapolis is going to need um millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to uh from the federal government for funding to rebuild um you know i i think that every couple years we go through this cycle in america it used to be like every 10 years uh, if you believe the Peter Turchin model, uh, there's a larger time frame for the cyclical nature of these things. But it seems to be accelerating. Every few years, like in 2015, we went through this p- period where Black Lives Matter and various NGOs and um, various left-wing provocateurs came together to cause chaos and cause disturbances and freak people out. Um, and then as soon as it got too real, too quickly, I think in 2015, it all kind of ended when uh, that one Black Lives Matter supporter shot up five cops in Texas. Yep. Um, as soon as that happened, Black Lives Matter basically disappeared. It, ba- it basically uh, disappeared for five years. All the people who were behind it um, went to ground and just kind of 
became your average social justice phenomenon. They're not really important players in this specific movement. And then, you know, the movement gets resurrected for election year um, because probably because of the political instability of the Democratic Party. And um, once again, you see the same dynamic. So this time it's been played out on a much wider scale. Uh, I think ultimately it, again, I'm perfectly content to let these people burn their own cities down and burn their neighborhoods down. Um, and I don't really think it'll it'll actually... Well, you say uh, that, think, but don't you think it's going to... I just sort of got I'm looking at a social media website that shall not be named, and they've got the Black Lives Matter donate uh, button prominently. Uh, I've been seeing this a lot lately. How but, do you donate yeah, but, Black Lives Matter? How does that even... Well, <laughs> You see, uh, you gotta you gotta have some guys who know how to set up organizations and manage cash flow and uh, make sure that all the interests are represented uh, equitably, and uh, you know they help to direct all the cash flow and uh, you make sure that it gets the right people on the ground. Hmm. They also, uh, you know, I think this cycle back when uh, BLM first sort of originated, uh, I did not see nearly this amount of uh, corporate sponsorship. Yeah, uh, there there true. was some. It's the uh, the famous uh, DeRay uh, Patagonia jacket, uh, but uh, <laughs> DeRay. Oh. Yeah, they it's it's specifically uh, you know it's like a blue jacket, but they lightened up the shade uh, by like you know four degrees just subtly in order to uh, make him look darker by contrast. Uh, I mean, but the I like this the... this cycle it's it's been you know I'm, I'm getting emails from chipotle it's like you know we we believe that like blah 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 just like you know the, the standard verbal diarrhea and like we're giving 500 grand to like god only knows who well i i think uh, i mean my company sent out this just ridiculous email <laughs> from the c-suite to all employees i mean this thing just went on for paragraph after paragraph it just like Okay, yeah, you're really sad about what happened. Great. And then at the end, uh, there was a list of materials that we should bone up on. And uh, one of the materials was the case for reparations, an article written in The Atlantic. Um, we should also watch the series Dear White People. Oh, God. Uh, you know, it just went on and on. All, and then there was a bunch of Maya Angelou it's like, who, who put siege in this reading list? Which right. uh, I was half expecting which to printing. See. Do you recommend? I kind of wanted. I mean, in fairness, if I I did it, yeah. <laughs> if <laughs> I, you know, one of these days, I hope someone like is able to like just play around with this and slip in an unintentional reference to something like uh, Bronze Age mindset or. Uh, what is Mike Ma's book, Harassment Architecture? Yeah, I mean, you know, like, just slip that in and just FBI see. FBI crime stats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, other than that, I don't really care. Uh, I think that most corporations, first of all, are doing this because they're trying to avoid the inevitable shakedown artists who, like, you know, I mean, uh, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson are not really big players anymore but there will be someone to replace them and the gen the game is 
you you go through these performative uh, humiliation rituals and these Maoist struggle sessions at a national scale, and then you determine who didn't uh, prostrate themselves uh, copiously enough or fast enough, and you target them for some kind of shakedown racket. And generally, the shakedown racket employ. I mean, uh, on paper, my understanding is that normally it's just uh, well, you need to hire more black employees and you need to do these diversity requirements and yada yada. And then um, behind the scenes, there's always all kinds of mechanisms that are effectively buy-offs, but they're not really buy. You know, legally they're not buy-offs, but effectively they're buy-offs. Um, yeah, there was a one of the actors from The Sopranos. I think his name is a Steve Sharippa. He was the guy who played Bobby. He was on Joe Rogan um, a few years ago, and he said when he lived um, in kind of the New York area, he was working the casinos. Actually, I think for probably Trump at one point, uh, but Atlantic City basically. Uh, I think it was Jackson or Sharpton, one of the two, would show up and basically, and you could look this up on Joe Rogan, but. Um, the the guy would show up and say, hey, um, I don't see a lot of black faces working here. Uh, what are you guys going to do about that? And uh, and then there would be this sort of like shucking and jiving going on where the guy would basically say, well, you know, if you give me an envelope, um, we'll we'll put that to the community instead if you don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, and I the mean, guy just, would be given like forty thousand dollars in an alleyway behind this. Just this Jack, yeah, basically. Ne- so-called Negro leadership consists of profiting off of the plight of your fellow Negroes. That's, yeah. that's how that works. Yeah. I mean, but there's really, I mean, there is no second generation. Like Al Sharpton is like 80 years old. Jesse Jackson is like 80. Like none of these people are really politically active anymore. Yeah. And, you know, the, there is no kind of middle generation of people who are, you know, like 50 or whatever, who they're already possessed of whatever moral authority they have. They already have the, uh, the media presence or whatever. Instead, it's basically, uh, like just people who know literally nothing, who no one has ever heard of except for, uh, in as much as they're mostly notable for shaking down their own institutions, like the horrible, uh, the lady at the uh, the New York Times who uh, looks like Pennywise, uh, Ira oh, yeah. or Ida Wells or something, who does the uh, 1619 uh, project. Uh, I mean, that's but that's not really a you, you can't take uh, people who are put in a position in order to have like some institutional role at a certain uh, institution that needs just like a black in a role uh, and have them claim like broader uh, like social influence or whatever, because the point is that you have them in the stable and basically, you know, directed internally and not externally because externally draws a little bit too much heat to the institution. Well, yeah, I mean, you, I think you're right. I think on some level we've moved beyond need for shakedown artistry. Although this, you know, shakedown artistry now exists as sort of a meta politic, maybe. But uh, a lot of companies are doing it to themselves. I suspect that the pressure is coming within the company from blacks who want career advancement generally. Um, but you know, you saw the other day that Alex or Alexi, whatever his name is, Alex. 
Alex Ohanian. Uh, one of the that, that one dude. of the one yeah, of the Reddit. idiots that runs um, Reddit, which is I think he left though. Well, uh, he founded he, he, it, but well, he left and he he resigned his board position. Yeah, and he said he wanted a black person to replace him. Well, he married a black woman. Just put her in yeah. charge. She's a tennis player. I'm sure she'll do as just as good a what job is, as with, Ellen Powell. That's stupid. What is it with blacks and How did that I was under the impression Reddit was run by an emergent system hive mind. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, you know, on some level, like basically cucking yourself out of a job for a black person is the most Reddit thing you can do. It's just fire yourself and tell your company before you leave, please hire a black person to replace me. Yeah. I don't deserve employment. Yeah, that probably gets a lot of upvotes. Yeah, you got some gold maybe for that post. Um, you know, I, I think on some level as well, we're never really going to see uh, any kind of drawdown from this. I, I think this time it might have gone too far. And it's at the point where they either have to deliver to a lot of the blacks and honestly white people that are buying into this. Yeah, that was the story this time around, like the amount of white participation in this. I mean, Michael Tracy's uh, live tweeting of the uh, the racial demographics of the rioters is pretty hilarious. But I mean, you're seeing things like this, uh, this incident, which uh, I'm sure that we will never get to the bottom of where uh, some sort of a uh, Air Force security sergeant uh, appears to have uh, blown up uh, a couple of cops. Um, well, I think that they did get to the bottom of that. He, well, he's a beaner, and on top of it, he is like a diehard libertarian, snake flag loser. And, right. I mean, um, he, by getting to the bottom of it, I mean he was posting a lot of uh, uh, "woe is me" like racism, etc. Uh, like racial, but like racial narratives that are taken up by white progs and uh, used as a excuse for like highly more competent violence than anything that uh, blacks were able to do sort of indigenously. That's a, it's not a totally new phenomenon because you saw similar things in the sixties, but it's, it's new in contemporary history. Yeah. Like the, like, Blacks really aren't driving the show on this whole this whole uh, endeavor. Uh, like they're on kind of a micro political level. I mean, I guess you're supposed to genuflect to them in crowds or whatever. But all of the substantive structural political action seems to be not driven by them at all. Yeah, I would say I would say that um, probably the most disheartening aspect of all this, but. I think it shouldn't be unexpected is that um, most of the most hardcore supporters, conflagrators, whatever you want to call them, of this agenda appear to be falling into two groups, uh, maybe three groups. Uh, certainly Jews, activist Jewish types are definitely present. You can tell just by looking at photos or looking at names. Um, secondly would be urban and suburban white people. Um, and on top no, of that, white, women, say, I, white I, women in particular. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, mostly white women, but 
Um, well, let's put I'm, it this I'm, way. They're the ones who will promote it the most on social media. I mean, I, yeah. I, I am trying to get away from it, but it, it doesn't seem to be possible at this point. Um, well, the, the third, the third group that seems to be the most extreme, if I really had to put my finger on it, it would be black women. Um, I don't really know what is causing black women to be these extremist, hardcore, um, Haitian revolution style figures. Uh, but there seems to be a, a, like a real effervescence of black female uh, radicals. And I don't know if that's um, what's driving that. I mean, Ryan had, Ryan had an interesting theory that a huge chunk of it is because they're like the the single highest demographic to be without like sexual partners or consistent sexual partners or something like that. Like, yeah, not- I think that's part of it, but it's also, <laughs> you know, comparatively, uh, it's a fairly highly educated group. I mean, it's right. like paper credentials and bullshit. Yeah. But both of those things, like the lack of a, uh, the lack of a economic position that they believe that they're entitled to and the lack of a sexual uh, recompense that they believe that they're entitled to. They're both reflections of, you know, they don't feel as though the practical status uh, that they receive in society is equivalent to their uh, their sort of moral stature that they believe that they already possess. And so that's why you see, like, a lot of this huge emphasis on uh, whenever, like, there's one of these crowds, like, you can just see the sheer... This is not something that's unique to black women, but like, I mean, geez, uh, the sheer like simian pleasure that you get in uh, like having the microphone and like hooting at the mayor of Minneapolis or the governor of wherever or like some police official or National Guard and like shouting them down and getting them to genuflect to you like that rush is obviously stronger than any uh, any narcotic that could possibly be uh, could possibly be invented by uh, the science of man. Yeah, and, and I think that that as well is is probably at play in the larger support of this. And there's a dopamine addiction effect, um, and social media being so tied into this uh, definitely hard, you know, or it strengthens my belief. That vast majority of Americans are mentally ill. Um, certainly the vast majority of people aged 18 to 40 are mentally ill. And um, they're mentally ill in the sense that they are extremely addicted to attention. They're extremely addicted to grandstanding. They're extremely addicted to making sure that their voice is heard as part of some crusade amongst others. It's a very bizarre mentality. Uh, I really, I suspect that beyond social media, um, I think just lack of real employment, lack of real, uh, you know, meaning in life for a lot of these people is driving it. But there's certainly a level, high degree of mental illness that I think we're not really accounting for, and that's probably driving a lot of this. I don't, you know, you have to be mentally ill to go out in the street and cry and scream about a random crack, literal crackhead that you've never met in your life who might have died at the hands of some bad police encounter in a 
kind of second tier Midwest city. Well, if I can make an analogy, and I don't, I really don't mean to offend anyone by this, uh, and I don't actually view that type of behavior as necessarily uh, insane or mentally uh, disturbed, but I would compare it to people who go to houses of worship and get worked up about that stuff where you can't see anyone, you don't know these people, or you're worshiping a prophet that is no longer alive. So I right. compare what this is, and many of others have done this, but I, I really compare what they're doing to a religious experience. I think they, they've bought into the church of progressivism, basically. Yeah, I, I agree, Adam. It's an expression of the American religion at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, speaking of American culture, um, we, I think yeah, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we, uh, we had thought about doing a film review. Um, we ended up doing Hoaxed, the um, Mike Cernovich pack job film. Um, of course, we should mention, for those who don't know, Mike Cernovich allegedly actually watched the review uh and was not pleased about it he called us a far right hardcore far right podcast um i don't know is that yeah, right we're, we're the moderate rebels we're yeah. you know okay. we're we're the ones that can be reasoned with uh especially you know donation jars looking a bit slim there uh speaking of which i i have to thank uh this month we've gotten a few uh one of which was very very generous um but thanks to everybody uh, we got about, uh, you know, some um, some new Nike spending money. Uh, now that the price of Nikes have have uh, gone up, <laughs> now that Nike yeah. Corporation, I was I was being ironic earlier. Yeah. I, it, it's very much appreciated. Uh, we know that, like, especially in the current uh, situation, money's tight for everyone, and everything does really help with uh, things like hosting costs. Uh, especially, that's the uh, that's the big one. So um, I don't know if you guys have any. We never really addressed on the show. Uh, Wait, I wanted to respond to Mike. Cern- did Mike Cernovich make a public statement? I've I have not. Yes, I didn't he, see he, that. he made a he made a public statement on oh, his okay. Twitter profile about us. Okay. Right. Oh wow. Okay, right. I didn't know that. We told you. What are you talking about? You didn't know that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Hank who uh, somehow got Mike to notice it. Uh, I just tagged uh, him uh, in uh, some, uh, yeah. I, I think, in the uh, the review or something. I'm surprised but he even bothered to reply. I'm sure it came to him. Well, he he does that he does that thing of like, uh, look how they attack me. Therefore, I'm a big deal. Mm. Like. It's like the really old trope of, ah, well, the left attacks me, the right attacks me because I'm so independent-minded and significant, and you know, it's that shtick. Mm-hmm. Well, he said he said publicly, by the way, Nick, and you might find this interesting, he said the film was intended for centrist or center-left audiences. Uh, I don't really... Center-left? I don't think yeah, I've watched Literally this. nobody in that documentary was center-left. Um. Yeah. Well, you could say Tim Pool maybe, but Tim Pool just bought a gun. 
So, and he's saying he might vote for Trump. So, <laughs> you made fun of the beanie for the last time. Oh God! It's like, huh? Where could he possibly be hiding that revolver? Maybe he read Siege finally. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna need. He's gonna need to get a, a beanie skull mask now. <laughs> For the record, I do every every interview in a like uh, skull mask balaclava. Now I I like Tim Pool. I I think he's all right. (laughs) Yeah, and and I I you know in hindsight, I even I said nice things about him in our review. Yeah, yeah. in hindsight, I should have said something nice about him because uh, I actually do like him too. He's a he's a funny guy. He um, well, he's an actual journalist, and he's trying to find facts. His his story his story is interesting. Yeah. Uh, he's an actual like, like unlike most journos who are born with a uh, like a, a silver spoon in their ass. He's actually a yeah. kind of rags to riches dude who, literally, I think like he described it once as having slept on park benches while he was like right typing up some post for Vice, yeah. uh, like you know five six years ago. That was what he was doing. So. Yeah. Uh, no, he really That's, is passionate about what he does, which yeah. comes across pretty clearly. Um, yeah, they certainly don't uh, don't take care of their interns, do they? Advice, yeah. Well, I think Advice, they laid off a bunch of people. Isn't it dead now, or is it still up? They laid off it's some people. It's still around, but they like laid off a bunch of people, and they're they keep like purging their archive as people discover like, oh wait, this used to be an edgy publication. <laughs> Did they get bought by Huff HuffPo or somebody or some big somebody big I thought bought them? I don't know. Wasn't it News Corp? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Somebody bought them. I remember like way back in the day, Vice used to do. Well, uh, okay. Speaking of. <laughs> yeah, we probably should get to the topic. Well, hold on. I remember like way way back yeah. in the day, Vice used to do really actual edgy stuff. Like they sent some poor journalist to Pat like rural Pakistan. And they're like, the basic thesis was, are there nuclear weapons just kind of floating around? Oh, I saw that one. That was good. It it was like Shane, like he actually was talking to some like weird Uzbek like arms dealer. And he's like, I I could get you a (laughs) nuclear warhead. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, "Uh, really? (laughs) It's like, well, no, but, you know, but maybe. (laughs) Oh, I mean, they used to be like the stereotypical uh, Vice yeah, stories. So like on, Antica, you had Antica a different Harry. film you wanted to watch. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, yeah. So this started with a... Uh, so three or four weeks ago, we were going to do a review of probably one of the most important films um, and interesting films, both in the, the film itself and the story behind it and the story that came after it of the 20th century, and that'd be Citizen Kane. Uh, for those of you who have not seen Citizen Kane, uh, I would recommend watching it. I believe uh, you can obviously pirate it pretty easily. Uh, it is available pretty much everywhere. Um, widely regarded as... Well, it's a, good, but it's definitely no hoaxed. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely, definitely not uh, as good as the Ghostbusters remake. Um, that's probably my favorite film. But Citizen Kane is is okay, and uh, it was a film made in 1941, 
kind of on the cusp of American entry, or I think right after the United States entered uh, World War II. And uh, the film is uh, widely regarded as the greatest American film ever made. Or the most important American film. Probably was true, like, until like 19 something now there's a there's a story behind how that came to be and we'll we'll get to that um but i mean have you guys all at least seen the film citizen kane yeah it's good it does it does hold up it does it's definitely good sometimes when you're watching an old film you have to kind of uh you know aesthetically uh hit yourself in the head with a hammer because uh like you're you're looking at it and it seems kind of uh, generic or um, uh, kind of really straightforward because it established the trope. So you're like, oh, I I bet I know what's going to happen watching Star Wars, even though I haven't seen Star Wars ever before because like every movie of that genre now is just a remake of Star Wars. But you can actually enjoy Citizen Kane. Well, we have a uh, test subject for this, actually, Hank. What was that? Adam had never seen the film. Is that uh, right, Adam? That, that's true. And actually, um, I had seen the Simpsons homage to it uh, as a youth <laughs> and found it weirdly funny, but obviously coming from somewhere that I wasn't aware of. And then I found out later, many years later, that it, the... Bobo Bear reference was actually a, a stand-in for Rosebud, and yeah, I actually watched it in prep for today's show. So, um, I guess I'm the guinea pig. What did you think? I of probe away. Watched the film. I I it's, I had seen this film many times over the years, and frankly, it's overall kind of boring. Uh, I much prefer Orson Welles's. It, I mean, keep in mind it was his first film. But I definitely prefer yeah. Touch of Evil, which came out maybe a decade later. And oh. that would be my favorite Orson Welles movie. I was impressed with the cinematography for the time. Like, I, I no computers yeah. and just a lot of cool dissolves and, like, you know, fade-ins. And I'm like, this is his first oh, not film? Just like, for this the time. is good. I mean, it, like, it holds up. No, it yeah. is. It's it's very yeah, good. It, and, it, and spooky it, and all that stuff. And everything that, that is done well. That holds up best. Yeah. So Citizen Kane, um, for like the film history buff, it's often regarded as one of the greater American films made. I think, and so that claim is the result of the AFI, the American Film Institute, um, and several liberal publications in the 1950s and 1960s going back and looking at the film. And because at that point they're trying to build a historiography of American film and trying to determine how has American film really progressed, where did a lot of these trends start, where did a lot of these techniques start. And many of these um, uh, connoisseurs of film determined that most of it could be traced back to Citizen Kane and and the work that Orson Welles did. Um, Or it, it was... Yes, it, Nick was right. It was uh, Orson. It, it was his first film. He was in his twenties when he made it. Um, he made it with RKO, which is a now defunct film studio, um, very big deal at the time. And he was uh, known 
as a uh, kind of provocateur, kind of the way we would think of um, Johnny Knoxville and like the Jackass stuff. Really? You, yeah, Orson Welles was viewed as like a like a shock artist and like a prankster. Um, Orson Welles is famously the man who did the radio broadcast in the 30s that. Uh, I mean, there's there's all kinds of mixed history on this, but did the War of the Worlds? That was him or H.G. Yeah. Wells. I always mix them up. Because no, 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 no. H.G. Wells wrote H. G. Wells was the source material. Or Orson Orson Wells, uh, okay. spelled spelled his name with a E after the double L. Um, he did the radio broadcast that okay. uh, allegedly spooked a lot of people with how well it was delivered. Um, now. I think Hank has brought this up before. It's actually that's actually not totally true. The stories of people like getting armed up and thinking there was actually yeah, the, the stories aren't true at all. They're so just they, flatly false. So There's no incidents of that. Smarter, than... but people are like, "Wow, this is really compelling." Yes, it's like um, if you uh, you can watch some of the um, uh, uh, there. It was unclear whoever made those, but uh, there's like a YouTube. Uh, uh, videos. Um, there's actually a few different versions, weirdly enough, uh, of a uh, like CNN news broadcast or whatever about a developing situation in the Baltics that uh, oh, yeah, over the yeah, course yeah. of like a half hour or something escalates into a nuclear exchange. Um, but it's that's a more contemporary uh, example that if somebody has never uh, seen that. Like, you know, you can get kind of some of the same uh, psychological effect of being able to appreciate um, that sort of thing very well delivered. Well, I, I, I just yeah. have to make the parallel to what's happening right now in America with the, the shops being looted and over statistically completely blown out of proportion events. Uh, and I mean, are we all that different or are we worse? Because... It's like, you know, we, we fancy ourselves as being more sophisticated and connected, but people back then who barely had any uh, awareness of what was going on around them apparently dismissed a extremely well-designed uh, hoax on the radio uh, more so than they're doing now with the, the mass everywhere and the chimping out about nothing. And I don't know. Yeah. So Wells was viewed as this... I well, I just wanted to say, I think that the reason that the film is given the status it's given has more, as well as it is competently made film, there's no denying that, and Wells was brilliant in many respects. Uh, but I think it's the theme and the story that really make it an American classic, for better or for worse. Right. Uh, you have much, and it is a composite character of, obviously... Hearst and other famous uh, magnets of the time and there's an eerie element of the film that parallels Wells' own life I mean this is a movie he made when he was a fairly young man that shows his his own decay which came out to be somewhat uh, portentous you know he, he died a fat alcoholic right so um, Wells was viewed by the uh, by, the film industry at the time in the '30s, in the late '30s, as an up and coming possible talent, and every couple decades, the American film industry goes through these phases, and arguably this is maybe the first of this of these phases, where they realize that 
they're becoming sclerotic. They're making the same content over and over again. They're just repackaging stuff, using a lot of stock footage. It's getting very boring. Um, they can't write anything interesting. They're not provocative and so on. And they go out and they, they seek out new talent, often people who have never made a film before or who, or who have dabbled in uh, you know, small films or small projects. Uh, at the time, the best place to recruit non-film talent for film production was the theater. And that is, of course, where Orson Welles uh, came from. Orson Welles is a, uh, alongside a notorious prankster, uh, he was a, a very accomplished uh, uh, actor, director, uh, playbook writer in the theater. And uh, when he was approached by RKO, he was offered this amazing contract, one of a, a contract that at the time had never been seen before. He was offered, uh, and this is something that you, you'll hear now is being hotly debated uh, for, for current film contracts, but uh, he was offered full creative control, full creative control, meaning that he had final say on every element of the film, every element of the film would, would either live or die by his whim. Uh, and he was given, I think, $800,000, which at the time was a lot of money, uh, to, make this, to make this movie. And now, within the Hollywood community, this was seen at the time as being pretty egregious. Um, there was some worry amongst people like Louis B. Mayer, Warner Brothers and others, uh, who worried publicly worried that this was going to be the beginning of a, uh, of a new trend where uh, certain film studios would offer these, these supposed creative brilliance, tons of money and total control, and they would make disastrous films that nobody saw and it could bankrupt the studio system. And so there was a lot of ham-fisting and worrying about film, the finances of the film industry. Uh, and it was all focused on Orson Welles. And Orson Welles hadn't even made the film yet. No one even knew what his first film was going to be. Um, but Orson had a, a, a idea in mind. He had had this idea in his mind for some time, although he didn't really know yet how to write it. And that was a story of really the United States told through the eyes of one man who kind of lived from... Uh, roughly the period of the post-Civil War America, a Yankee in post-Civil War America, uh, all the way through the Gilded Age, all the way through the Progressive Era, all the way through the you know World War One, all all the way through all of that, um, and then you know died shortly uh, there at some time at the end, you know, towards the end of the 30s as the the Depression is roiling. Uh, he wanted to tell a story about the American landscape during this really crucial period where the United States went from uh, kind of recuperating after the Civil War to becoming a global power and then falling into this state of misery. And, and in 1941, talking about the Great Depression um, in those terms was it was even or even making a film about it was uh, was seen as um, kind of taboo. No one wanted to call attention. To this in film yet they didn't want realistic films about depression uh, because films were seen primarily as ways of uplifting people they weren't meant to be taken seriously 
Um, they weren't meant to be super artistic. They were meant to just kind of be a, another form of entertainment, like listening to a one-hour radio broadcast about a, you know, uh, the Green Hornet or you know all these uh, the Lone Ranger. That's how films were thought of at the time. But Orson Welles really wanted to craft a story of America and craft a story of the American tycoon, uh, the kind of archetype figure who had defined this era of time. And uh, he focused on one man in particular, although Nick is right, it is a composite of many of these men, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Morgan, uh, and so forth, uh, there's a couple of small allusions to Rockefeller, if I remember correctly. But the, the major, major real life character who Cain, uh, Charles Foster Cain, is based upon would be the eponymous uh, newspaper magnate, William Randolph Hearst. Um, now, at the time, William Randolph Hearst was still alive, although very old and was seen as probably one of the most dangerous people to piss off just because of the power he he held within both the american media and the kind of american cultural apparatus and all of his investments uh, across the american economy this is not a man that you wanted to anger by portraying uh, poorly in some kind of motion picture so uh orson decides to start writing this film and he uh somehow i can't remember how but he, he gets synced up with a man named uh, herman mankiewicz uh, herman mankiewicz another theater writer uh, another very accomplished author uh, very intellectual man had actually been friends with william randolph hearst um, had even written for him at one point um, knew him very well and he offered to co-write this screenplay with Orson. Uh, and then Orson would produce uh, and direct in the film. And then the decision came later. Um, it was not the decision at first, but the decision came later that Orson Welles would portray Charles Foster Kane um, at multiple stages in the man's life. Now, in this is one of the reasons why the film is, uh, was seen as groundbreaking Having a character portrayed at multiple points in his life from his early 20s to his final years in his 70s, I think, something like that, um, by the same actor, just utilizing different voices, makeup, prosthetics, all of that, uh, clever uses of camera frame, um, I think they were even doing cheap stuff like just stuffing rags underneath his clothes to make him look fatter and all, you know, all this. Um, this was this was, had never really been done before in film. This is not a very popular technique. Um, in fact, portraying a film over the course of a man's life was not even a popular uh, technique in film. Again, American film was not being taken seriously. This was something reserved for the theater. Um, and then when Orson Welles decided to start casting other people than himself, he mostly went to theater actors. So when you watch the film, you'll notice that a lot of the acting feels very real. 
Um, the dialogue feels very real. There's a lot of great back and forth. These feel like real people actually talking. It's not like a lot of the films made in the 30s and 40s, where, as Hank said, it feels very forced. You have to kind of take yourself out of your current mindset into the suspension of disbelief and kind of you have to try and just roll with it. Citizen Kane holds up in a lot of ways because these still feel like real people talking to each other. Um, and that's because none of them are really film actors. Most of them have never been in a film. They were almost all predominantly uh, people that Orson knew and had met throughout the course of his life or so even acted with in the theater back on the East Coast. Um, so the film eventually uh, it decides to, to settle on uh, Charles Foster Kane, Herman Mankiewicz uh, brought on, and uh, now William Randolph Hearst is is really the obviously the central uh, character that's being um, sort of monikered in the film. And uh, apparently Hearst, who had a pretty sizable amount of influence in Hollywood, although Hearst himself was, I think, kind of an anti-Semite and, and kind of like uh, maybe in some ways our guy at the time. Um, but Hearst had obviously connections in Hollywood and uh, he immediately tried to shut down production. He did everything in his power to try and shut down production of the film before it even got started. Um, he was a very paranoid person, especially in his twilight years. He was very paranoid about his reputation because uh, as he got older and he became less fierce, uh, people had started to uh, be less frightened of the ghost or the specter of William Randolph Hearst. People were more likely to take pot shots at him in the media. Um, he was seen as kind of representing this dead generation of tycoons by that point morgan rockefeller carnegie vanderbilt all these people you know Mellon, like all these people are dead um they're all dead and a lot of their empires have been diced up and hearst is still sticking around trying to uh trying to live out his last days in charge of this massive media conglomerate and uh he tried to shut down the production multiple times. Of course, um, this was the first in Hollywood history, one of the first in Hollywood history. They had a totally closed set. They uh, used to be, like, you know, making a film again, not seen as very, very important or uh, serious. Anyone could just walk onto your film set, or anyone could just kind of walk up and see what you were doing. It was uh, wasn't really seen as invading privacy. Um, but there was a, there was a particular worry amongst Wells who himself was becoming very paranoid about Hearst while he was making the film. Uh, so much so that uh, Wells, I think, had private security and he had uh, this whole way of vetting people before they were able to access the set. No journalists were allowed to access the set or interview the actors or interview Wells or interview Minkowitz. Uh, the head of RKO at the time refused to talk about the film. Um, word was getting out, though, that there was this kind of hit piece being made by this uh, notorious prankster about Hearst. Um, so you fast forward, and the film finally comes out. Um, the film is actually, at the time, makes about double its budget, give or take, which is not bad. 
and um, was not even very well reviewed. Some liked it. Um, it was it was regarded mostly as experimental, kind of weird, um, like a very long play, and um, no one really wanted to give it a serious look. There have been allegations over the years that um, some number of these film critics, journalists who looked at the film, were paid off by Hearst to give the film a poor review or to dismiss it. Um, a number of newspapers, whether or not they were tied to Hearst, refused to even advertise or review the film to begin with, um, which Wells sus- uh, was on the record as suspecting was why the film didn't do as well as that, you know, there was an attempt to basically hide its existence to some degree. Um, the film was somewhat popular, though, certainly provocative. It went on to uh, go to the Oscars where it was uh, hilariously booed by almost the entire audience when its name was announced, uh, when it was up for awards. Um, so that's sort of the, the story of Citizen Kane. Um, the film itself, Wells, of course, as Nick said, never really recovered from the drama behind the film. Um, he had a two-picture full creative control deal with RKO. Of course, the second film that he made, um, literally no one has ever seen because it just wasn't very popular. Um, and he actually claimed that... W- he made the film. He left it to the editors to finish. He went on a trip to South America. And while he was in South America, the f- parts of the film were remade without his say-so, without him even knowing until he got back. Um, parts of it were edited out. And so RKO basically tore up its contract with him. And uh, he never really made any prominent films ever again his his biggest role outside of citizen kane would be playing the villain in the 1949 film the third man um other than that wells was never it's really his, a, it's his single greatest moment of his entire wells career what's the line it's like oh there's little people oh man that, that that's one of my favorites yeah, I mean, what Wells, um, if you watch the film, you can see he's a tremendous actor. He kind of effortlessly plays this man, uh, Kane, at multiple points in his life uh, with ease. He plays Kane at the age that Wells is at. Um, I would say for the largest period, for the largest single period, is when Kane is in his 20s. And he is sort of this idealistic young um, journalist and provocateur um, who has inherited wealth from a childless, weird uh, banking magnet. Yeah, that part, I thought they kind of just glossed over. Like this weird rich guy shows up randomly. Now, what was the, there must've been some connection to that family. Like it was a cousin or, or something. Well, no, 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 there's, there's no connection. Well, no, they found gold on the property. Well, yeah, but that's kind of the, they, no, they found wealth on the, what happened. They, so yeah. they, they found wealth on the property and then the mother gave him away. Is the idea. But why? So it's a, when no, it, 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 because America, the whole idea is that he's he's new money, right? 
Yeah. You know, yeah. he he doesn't he grew up in poverty, but then grew up in wealth shortly thereafter. And you know, he goes on to live a long and fruitful existence where you know he's ruined by multiple women and spends his dying days in his decaying pleasure palace of Xanadu, surrounded by. You know, all the great art from the world that is now meaningless to him because the only thing he ever really cared about is the childhood he was deprived of. Right. Yeah. I mean, th- there is this strange America. There, there is this strange <laughs> element um, to that character who I'm blanking on his name, the man who adopts him. Um, but I, I feel like on some level, I've always suspected that the implication is maybe that he's gay or that he can't have kids because there's never a wife mentioned. Charles never has a stepmother. Um, he just sort of has this really strained, uh, almost hateful relationship with this man who adopts him. Yeah, and it's not- incredibly obnoxious to the guy, to be right. honest. Right, and I and I don't know if there's a if there were cultural mores at the time that prevented the film from being more open about the fact that this character is probably gay. And uh, wanted 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 someone to take over his empire. He didn't have any heirs, and he chose this upstart kid from Colorado, uh, who decides to uh, basically to look look at all this money and wealth. And I think he, he's being described as kind of gallivanting around various colleges and being kicked out of colleges in Europe and. Um, buying art and buying women in his in his like teens and tw- early twenties, he's he's sort of a playboy and um, is socialite and um, he only decides to come back and run one of his adopted father's various holdings, which is a kind of rundown newspaper, um, just because he thinks it'll be fun. Because it would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like a, a commentary here that still holds true to this day about kind of uh, new money, the nouveau riche, about people that don't necessarily make their wealth but but inherit their wealth, um, who often do things that are um, pointless or are more for vanity or more for experience or really just about having fun. You know, when you have an unlimited stream of money. Um, you can have endless amounts of fun and you can kind of not pretend to not have a job and all that sort of thing. Um, there's a scene where I got, I got two things to say. Go ahead. So, so one of the important lines in the movie is where he says something to the effect that, you know, maybe if I didn't have all this money, I could have been a good man. And <laughs> The second thing I'd like to say is that if you want to watch a film about old money and class that I think is a superior film to Citizen Kane and very much a non-American film, despite having uh, Burt Lancaster in the lead role, would be the film The Leopard, which I probably have recommended on here before. But oh, yeah, watch go watch that movie. The Leopard instead of Citizen Kane. Yep, watch that movie. I, I, I've liked Burt Lancaster. Are you just saying because he's American that it's uh, off pudding or the fact that you don't like Burt Lancaster it's, it's fine he's the finest moment of Burt Gang- Lancaster's life like he, he the, especially the end of that movie when he does when he does the mazurka 
it, if it doesn't hit you in the feels, uh, you don't have a fucking soul, man. <laughs> well, were there any moments in Citizen Kane for any of you guys that kind of uh, hit you in the soul, as Nick said it? Are there any moments really. that really struck you? Yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. It it's sort it, of predictable. It's kind of an emotionally flat movie to me in a lot. But is it is it predictable because so many films have been based on that narrative? Maybe I I don't know. I think probably that that's the most powerful emotional moment in the film is the scene at the opera where he starts clapping and clapping right. and clapping. Why? Because his wife well, was singing. I mean, that's the only thing well, I remember. It's like well, because he wanted everyone else. Yeah, to I, I, I get it, but yeah, I don't I mean, know. There's, it's not there's that profound. Things that yeah, resonate, like the, the the iconic uh, uh, shot of him in front of a gigantic uh, photograph or print or illustration of some sort of himself um, when he's at Madison Square Garden uh, running for governor in front of a gigantic. Uh, image of himself Mm -hmm. like these are things that kind of resonate like it's definitely drawing upon uh these experiences like the 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 very like compressed shot um where he's uh dining with his wife and the uh the table gets longer and longer and longer like these are things where like you know, honestly, as you get a little bit older, um, some of these things start to resonate a little bit more as far as what they're getting at. But the I think like because it is kind of it's prototyping a lot of these things, it doesn't have the same sort of, uh, you know, direct heroin like I know what receptor that is going to be triggered. I'm going to use the aesthetic that just punches it as hard as possible. Like that's something that Hollywood has relentlessly innovated on over the course of, you know, almost a hundred years now uh, to the point where if you combine that with something that's actually uh, any sort of a decent work of art is actually very effective at that in a way that like, you know, citizen Kane is trying to get at that, but it's still, uh, it doesn't have the same like just raw technical like feel sad goddamn it uh, that well, uh, you know you get in you know even something like a Disney film now. I I enjoyed um, I think it was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof uh, with Paul Newman more than this. I thought that was more emotionally uh, powerful, and I I think the theme was pretty much the same. It was like a rich kid and. You know, he couldn't find love, and I—I I don't know. I—I I just thought I, I get your your argument that the technicals maybe weren't there, but I think the storytelling also just the character wasn't that compelling. Like I, I just didn't like the guy <laughs> to be honest, and I didn't care about him, and he just seemed like kind of a jerk, and he kind of earned his own misery, and I—I eh, I don't know. I didn't care about yeah. him. I mean, that that's one of the things that's kind of interesting on a meta level with this film. Like, the idea that uh, the whole thing is just rife with Freudianism <laughs> when these uh, when these ideas were, and I'm not using that, like, as a pejorative. I'm saying, like, the Freudian memeplex is yeah. just 
like that drives the entire movie. And at the time, like those ideas were very um, fresh and people even took them somewhat seriously. Now it's like, you know, that that's a joke. Uh, you know, the whole movie is driven by this central conceit of, you know, I'm carrying the baggage of my childhood trauma. Like that expression does not make any sense. Like you have the the individual words, but like that expression makes no sense unless you already have a at least like kind of the ambient uh, cultural understanding of Freudian ideas. Well, I think that the film, it's hard to really look at the film, and this is what I I was trying to respond to Adam, without viewing it as sort of a uh, progenitor for so many kind of tired and cliche plots now. Um, In a lot of ways, you're right. Like The character is actually not very likable. One of the things I was thinking of is maybe in the American mindset of the early 1940s, he was a more likable person. I don't know. I don't know if there was a cultural aspect that kind of fed into the film that's lost its poignancy, uh, especially when he's a young man. Uh, I I feel like maybe there was a time where that was seen as actually not being like a dickhead um, and just being cocky, but also idealistic, you know, full of heart, full of um, full of cleverness. Like, you know, those were seen as as good traits. He was seen as like a normal guy. Um, I don't know. And, And I also think there is a chance that we're all too cynical. Like we live in a very cynical time and that we view it in a very cynical way. I don't, I don't really know. I think that those are, those are good questions about maybe just American, the development of American life after Citizen Kane came out, you know, like that was kind of the end or, you know, actually I should say that was the beginning of kind of the last phase of the golden era of America was 19, well, there, 1941. There is a, a cultural, uh, like the, the way that the film, uh, I'm, I'm trying to like not use the, the dipshit language that I hate, um, but it's the easiest thing to say, so I will. But the way that the film engages with issues of class <laughs> uh, is, is something that like might have actually been a lot more uh jarring or not, not jarring but resonant i guess uh, right. in like 1941 the depths of the great great depression i almost said great recession i can't wait to see uh, how that turns out yeah we can have citizen kane 2.0 with like you know lloyd blank fine the main character yeah th- 13 years <laughs> account, but, but uh, so so what i was saying <laughs> the, I mean, the, the, the inciting oh, the inciting incident the inciting incident is that like the family is living in poverty. They happen upon like surprise. Here's this gold mine. And that allows like his family to go and be like, no, you get to actually make something of yourself. We're going to send you away so that you can get a proper education and make something of yourself, which is like, you know, an impulse that 
a lot of people at the time, you know, would have been desperate for that opportunity. Right. And yet that's like the inciting, uh, like, you know, the, the Freudian inciting trauma that causes this, uh, this man to become a great man in some respects, but not a good man in others. So, I mean, that's, if you, if you actually have some, uh, experience or some, some like conception of, you know, the, the role of like being sent away to get one's education, like that, that's just like a ridiculous idea right now. That's, that's an absurdity. Like what? So that they can learn how to, how to hate me, how to screw themselves up mentally so they can, you know, become intrinsically corrupted as like the buy-in. Like that's insane. But, you know, at the, at the time that's actually a, uh, a kind of a tragic, uh, like a classical Greek tragic, uh, instinct. Like that's a, uh, the, uh, like I'm mixing a lot of kind of different, uh, intellectualisms, but it's, it's not quite the hubris of thinking that you can improve yourself because he does improve himself. He does become great. But it's that uh, that tragic tension of the uh, like the the thing that allows him to, uh, in some sense, self-actualize is also the thing that prevents him from uh, uh, actualizing in, in like a moral sense. Like he, again, becomes great, but not good. Right. Yeah, I think in 18, I think it had to be early 1870s uh, when we actually like meet young Kane for the first time. But um, I think in the 1870s, it was probably a very, very coveted um, ideal to be able to remove yourself from the harshness of a Colorado homestead. Um, and, inject your 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 life into the privilege and the amazement of really the east coast especially after the civil war and there's this triumphant nature to the upper east coast uh and right on the cusp of kind of the second industrial revolution in america the mechanization of america uh i you know i i think that he he probably did a good job capturing the feeling of that time and maybe the film deserves a lot of accolades for properly capturing the feelings of america in the 1870s america this in, was a time where you could go and yeah. make your fortune and, and, and plenty, plenty could, of people and, did and i think that it probably benefited from the fact that kane probably or i'm sorry not kane but wells probably had the ability to speak to people who were alive in the 1870s and, and they're obviously very old by the time he would, would have interviewed them for the film uh but maybe even when he was younger he met you know his grandparents who were alive at the time or he, he met people from in his time in theater acting where he can you know, meet all these interesting people from all over and I feel like he, he does a good job capturing America in the 1870s, America in at the turn of the century, and in in, you know, in, in like America in the run up to the Spanish American War, uh, America in uh, the Roaring Twenties, and you know he really I think 
does a good job of capturing what America is like in these different periods. Um, but I, you know, I think you're right on some level, the film has lost its poignancy and maybe it's, it's lost its ability, some of its ability to resonate just because we live in an era that is, you know, 70, over 70 years removed from that time. Yeah. And, and it's hard to really, let me draw some them. comparisons though. Yeah. And I, I have a response to that, but so, go ahead, Nick. Do Okay, well, as for as for the age of the film and its its relationship to how emotionally effective it is, I recommend the films of uh, Misoguchi, which you know, not much newer than that. I mean, Tokyo Story I think came out in fifty one or something like that. Obviously, a very different setting, but uh, as far as something that really holds up to the test of time and emotionally. In, in its pathos, I would go with the films of Misaguchi. However, two years prior to Citizen Kane, I think a better film came out, and that would be Gone with the Wind. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say um, It's a Wonderful Life. I, I thought it was better. I, I mean, you know, and that one's super popular, but. I agree with that too, Adam. Yeah, and so I just I don't think the timing has really much to do with the fact that the film didn't have much resonance. I mean, I think it was shot very well. The acting was very good. The story, eh, you know. But yeah, technically it was it was well executed. That's yeah, really on, my on, summary. On a technical level, I mean, there's a lot of shots um, where it, I remember reading um, one of the innovative things they did, and this might shock you was that in a lot of the indoor sets, they actually built the set to ceiling. Now, at the time, this was extremely rare. You never really shot a film in a completed room. Films were shot in these, like, uh, stand-up structures that were, you know, put up in five minutes and lightly decorated. And, And it looked very, it looked cheap because it was cheap. They actually went to real locations or they built real sets over time that had the ceiling and had lighting, you know, proper lighting and had yeah. a real character to the And that, set. what that produced was there was this scene where there's in the boardroom, one of the most famous scenes in the movie for, from the technical perspective, where it's raining outside. And if you look on the table, it looks like the rain is falling on the table. Uh, that could only be accomplished by a complete room set like Hans is describing. Yeah. And to that, I would add something further. I, it is Wells real talent was for uh, cinematography and framing of shots because his other main interest, and there's even a line in the film uh, that refers to it where he's asked if he's a magician. And the answer is yes, Orson Wells is a magician. He was a magician. He was involved in stage magic. And my, one of my favorite films, besides Touch of Evil, my other favorite Orson Welles film, was a film he made in his late years in the 1970s called F is for Fake. And it's like one of for the fake OG kind of fake documentaries. Yeah. It it's a real, ass. it's a fake, that, fake that real documentary, and, real fake documentary. It's, yeah, it's really fucking good. Precisely. It's. And, yeah, and, and, and that, um, that to me is a mark of a good movie. Shines. You don't have to, like, hyper-analyze it. Like, that's a great movie. Like, it, it, there's no, like, hemming and hawing. 
I think I don't know. I th- I think we're trying to maybe defend it because other people, and I'm not saying we're really prone to this that much, but I think maybe part of it is affecting us that the American Film Institute oh has named this the greatest film of all time. I I didn't see it. I I just I thought it was well, good. But, you know. I don't. I actually don't think it's the greatest American film of all time. I'm not defending the film. I, as much as, I don't either. I, I'm not. I'm just trying to analyze it. I I think that. Uh, the film and the meta commentary around the film, and and the commentary on the commentary, and and the comment and everything we know about how the the politics of the film and what happened afterwards is 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 super important and interesting because it characterized a this man's life. Orson Welles, as Nick said, ended up living out his own Charles Foster Kane story. Uh, in a weird twist of fate, almost like a Twilight Zone episode, um, where you, like you make a movie about a character, and then like somehow <laughs> that the movie's plot becomes your life in one way or another. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, like, I remember in the ni- in 1960, or, or Wells gave this interview with the uh, the BBC or, or some British telecaster, and. He was, you know, he was asked about what what it was like making the movie, and this is, of course, in 1960. His career is dead, and he is just remembered as the guy who made Citizen Kane. Yeah, and he says uh, very frankly, first of all, he was already getting fat by this time, so he's, he's got like the big puffy cheeks and the yeah, top, the beard and everything. He doesn't have the beard yet. He's still clean shaven, but he's got the big cigar in his mouth the whole interview. Um, he, he, you know, he describes theater politics, or, uh, or movie theater politics, movie, movie, uh, movie company politics, as um, <laughs> a banana republics is what he calls them. Hmm. And he says that they're prone every year, every six months, whatever, to revolution and counter-revolution. And he just so happened to be able to make his film hmm. during a time when uh, the counter-revolutionaries, as he calls them, uh, were not in power. And that so after he's he was, a revolutionary saying he's well, a he, communist? Or well, what no, is he inferring? No, there, no, like? no, no. I think his point was more like that he, he barely, like the movie almost never got made. Okay. And he was yeah. trying to make, trying to make a wider point, uh, more about the film studios themselves, that sure. they are places of in palace intrigue, and um, they're very complex political organizations. Obviously, we know know they're very rooted in government propaganda and sort of media conglomerates. And uh, Wells was, you know, trying to basically say that uh, he he. he he barely even got the film made. It was sort of a miracle the film was made. Um, and it ended up being his own undoing in a lot of ways because he, he got this miraculous chance to make this very provocative film at the time. And it ruined his life. I mean, Citizen Kane that- is, both, is both his like greatest work and it, it really like <laughs> why did it, it ruin his life this is like somebody saying i won the lottery it ruined my life it's like well what did you do with the money buddy like i i don't he quite did, he didn't understand. make a lot of money from the film all right but he's fabulously successful i mean like millions of people would like trade their left arm for that like so the, the excuse that it ruined his life it just seems like 
oh, cry me a river, you know, Hollywood celebrity. Like, I, I just, I don't get it. So, well, I, I can understand there's, there's a thing that happens with a lot of um, artists. Uh, you know, it, it's more common in music where there's a reason why your sophomore album often sucks. Because over the course of your life, you have a certain set of experiences, you have a certain set of ideas, and then you sit down and you make a piece of art. And if you're uh, lucky and talented and uh, you know you put the, the effort into it, then it's a fantastic piece of art. And then it's like, okay, but now what? And you still have the same set of experiences and ideas and artistic motivations, but now they've been now they've been done. So, I mean, a lot yeah, of slump. Uh, yeah, a lot of what makes made Citizen Kane so influential was uh, things like technical risk taking that paid off dramatically. So some of the shots, I mean, there, there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of, um, I think you, you have to look on YouTube for a lot of this stuff because they analyze the shot and they show the, uh, the camera work, um, in a way that's very intuitive. Like some of these motifs and tropes and camera work that was just invented on the spot. It's like, well, you can only really do that once. Right. And so if you look at, I mean, even just that aspect in particular of just the the technical sophistication of Citizen Kane versus other things contemporaneously. So you if you do that twice, then you're just like another movie. And so you make kind of a mediocre movie. And honestly, if you look at the the plot of it, like it's it's a like the the way that the story is told is pretty inventive, but it's this like uh, kind of pseudo biopic uh, format that would be recognizable to anyone who watches a contemporary movie. And again, it's like, okay, but now what? So it's difficult when your output is something that you took the risks and it paid off. Do you just? Uh, keep making risk taking your central endeavor and eventually it's just you know you're you're neil young like shouting into a vocoder or something you're just like getting real weird because that's your thing now or oh no or you know every every like new performance from yoko ono is yeah or or do you try to do like you know george lucas industrial light and magic where the like you know you might not be uh, producing uh, works that are, um, you know, quite as groundbreaking, but you're advancing the technical state of the art. I mean, you you have kind of this choice of where to go, but I mean, regardless, it's it's not quite downhill, but you you can't really pull off something that's uh, shocking in the same way twice, almost by definition. I agree. It's hard to I, I mean, sort of you're surpass right. like, that your doesn't success. mean like, oh my god, my life is ruined. Yeah, like that, he had uh, he had like yeah. you know 
artistic esteem he could do basically the projects that he wanted to right uh like you know it's it's kind of like the the achilles uh bargain it's like you get to uh you get to have your shot and uh live gloriously for a while unfortunately then you end up also just like making uh hilarious uh obviously drunk off of his ass uh commercials for rich Corinthian leather and uh well, well, one you know, point, fabulous california <laughs> wines and whatnot well at one point he weighed 400 pounds oh my god <laughs> he weighed 400 pounds it's like elvis uh, he had the thick scraggly beard and the widow's peak hair and uh, I think he, he even act, he like did the voice acting for an animated Transformers movie. Yeah, which is actually is very good. That was some Wait, of his best work. Which one? I, I was a fan of that cartoon. Transformers the movie, the 1980 whatever. Uh, he did uh, the one the, with uh, Leonard the, Nimoy the was big, in it. Uh, villain, uh, not uh, not the robot villain, but not the Megatron, uh, like, but Unitron, not Megatron, uni- but the uni- Unicorn, uh, the, or? the like the consumer of worlds or whatever i think it was unitron or something like that it was it was something like that it was like the living unicron unicron i think that's yeah 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 that was it good and actually that that was good uh if you look at his um you can find the uh the outtakes uh for his uh his canned peas uh or uh commercial or his uh california sparkling wines (laughs) or the uh like Plymouth, whatever, with the wrench Corinthian leather. Like, he, it's like he needs money. He's one of the few directors that actually are celebrities unto themselves. Uh, like, very, very few uh, directors really uh, hit that, uh, hit that level mm-hmm. um, where like they're actually recognizable. But it's like, he needs the money. He's recognizable. Somebody will pay him to do the job. But by God, he does not have to be sober for it. So he is, you know, in a very uh, uh, sad way, just slurring his words, obviously, and stumbling over his lines and can't even get this uh, this 30-second spot uh, sealed, signed, and delivered. Uh I mean that—that's what he ended up reduced to, and I don't think that it's fair to ascribe that uh, to kind of his original artistic success, because even you know in the seventies, who's making great stuff like F for Fake. Yeah, and, uh, and there's tons of people that have consistently demonstrated that they're talented. It's not just that they, like, they were crippled by their success. No, they kept being successful. I mean, you know, Martin Scorsese, uh, Ridley Scott. I mean, they're they're old, old at this point, and their movies are still pretty darn good. So it, it's something deeper in his psyche, I think, that was damaged from either birth or something else. I have a hard to disagree on Ridley Scott there, Adam. You have a hard disagree? Well, maybe you can slightly disagree, but I think he's one of the better directors. Uh, so that, that Prometheus movie he made was <laughs> insanely The bad. second one was, was good, and I actually didn't dislike the first uh prequel either uh, but you know the, the evil black goo inside the little obelisk well, thing that, maybe, that maybe was... i'm maybe i'm just a fan well of interestingly enough so so he made one he made one truly great film which is of course played runner and I, gladiator I wanted I mean, to come on look there's a lot of good and films he made Alien. <laughs> okay alien is yeah. uh, yes 
Yes. Gladiator to this oh, day oh, is hey, still hey, the, yeah, the best film portrayal of the Roman Empire. I will give <laughs> yeah, Gladiator was good. You know that's not true. I don't know if it's the best. Of Rome, okay, but all right, I enjoyed all right, it. All right, hold up, back up. Back <laughs> all up, right, up. all right, go ahead, Nick. So, one thing I wanted to say is that uh, in the event, I've mentioned the Portland exclusion zone here in the past, uh, <laughs> and in the event that you find yourself there, there is a film rental joint called uh, Movie Pat Madness that's also basically a film museum. And you'll find that they have uh, the uh, guard, the Chinese dogs from Xanadu from Citizen Kane, as well as the miniatures from Blade Runner. That's cool. So I would go there if you if you if you have a reason to be in the in the city, go go check that out. They also have the soap from Fight Club. They have William Holden shotgun from the Wild Bunch. Nice. Uh, if you're if you're a film film buff, uh, you'll like it. Wait, Hank, what what do you think the best film about the Roman Empire is? I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> not not ben Gladiator. Oh. Not Gladiator. I, you know, live, I, I will say that there with was, Malcolm McDowell, of course. Yeah. There was a, there was actually like a like a movie that really flew under the radar uh, called Centurion, mm. maybe ten years ago. I would say the Rome miniseries is pretty good. Well, yeah, that, the documentaries that, I mean, are a separate category. Film, not just yeah. any. Media, but. That 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 wasn't a documentary. That was a that was a oh, I know. well, okay, TV series drama good. thingy. Right. But yeah. So we, I guess we're kind of wrapping up on uh, on Orson Welles and his movie here. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think. I honestly want to do a review on it because I figured it would be an interesting discussion, uh, maybe about American culture. I think it has been. Um, I will say, I think you should watch the film to the audience. You should watch the film. Um, You will see some parallels to some of the oligarchs we have today. Uh, I I definitely got a Jeff Bezos vibe from uh, the latter half of Kane's life when he gets caught with the the little debutante and it like breaks up his marriage and he, you know, it's like a public scandal. Uh, A little bit, yeah. He starts to descend into like the uh, the megalomaniacal behavior and the acquisition uh, of all of his competitors and... Uh, I definitely got a, like a Bezos vibe from that. Uh, yeah, I think see, back in the day, you could just be high off Bezos of America would be maybe and not more relevant. It's a mainline trend. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Nick is well, right. I think, well, I think the Bezos one that that yeah that that would work best where like once all of your enemies have a bunch of dirt on you, that's the exact time you think it would be fun to run a newspaper. <laughs> well, Bezos you know, is. I, yeah. Well, I should ask, you guys think they'll ever remake Citizen Kane? Will they ever stoop that low? Probably. No, because there's no uh, there's no commercial appeal for Citizen Kane. Like right. the like the stuff that gets remade, mm-hmm. it's uh, commercial properties with a lot of uh, yeah merchandising tie-ins and whatnot and. Yeah, the... Citizen Kane Funko Pops, something like that. Yeah, like with everything, Sleds. it's like 
it, it's kind of a weird uh, thing about who ends up with the rights and like the rights to what parts and because there's a lot of stuff that you literally can't remake because it's so unclear who actually owns it that you just be getting sued from every angle. I mean, maybe in uh, I guess uh, it was made in 1941, so theoretically we've got what like uh, like 20 years or so before it's uh, out of copyright. Yeah, and then everyone can take their uh, take their shot at it. It's 100 but years if you now. You say to like the median film goer, like, "Hey, the Citizen Kane remake is out." They're gonna be like. What's that? Esse, is that the the guy from Command and Conquer? No, that's no, what I was thinking gold. the whole time. I was like, did Command and Conquer take Dude, this name? They should do like a, a Citizen Kane <laughs> Fast and Furious uh, crossover movie. Like, maybe, maybe that's they also could, they Command could and Conquer. Citizen, Citizen Kane about Vin Diesel's life. About like the the building of the Brotherhood of Nod. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, Hank played a lot of real time strategy as a kid. Well, do you guys think that, because I've seen this comparison made, that uh, David Fincher's The Social Network is a modern Citizen Kane? Uh, Well, that's just fucking annoying because it purports to be about an event that actually happened. And, like, it would have been 98 percent less annoying if they just would have subbed the names and did i mean really the same thing where it was not like purporting to be about the subject even if there was actual influences going on because now it's like the 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 memes of uh of zuckerberg as some sort of a uh quote-unquote nerd are just not true yeah Uh, they're not politically uh productive i guess because it gives you with a fake conception of exactly what you're dealing with like he's not like woe is me like i never got the approval of my peers like that's not what's going on there yeah, I think he, so, he's more uh, more of a sociopath. I mean, I've I've seen him once in person talk, and um, he just completely didn't seem to have a soul. I mean, the guy was pitching Facebook, uh, completely lazy, didn't care about the audience, um, bad speaker, and very confident. Uh, it, it just <laughs> he was so he was so disconnected from I think the little people. It, it just didn't seem like he gave a damn about what they thought of him yeah i mean i'm not making that comparison i i remember when that movie film came out there were quite a few critics who were trying to of course make that comparison i I like the movie but yeah i don't see the parallel because i mean for a lot of reasons but yeah well i have two responses to that so it's one of the oldest going memes and film of like this is the new citizen game that that's been around forever right um, it, it did a pretty big sweep at the academy awards that was one of the things that was a benchmark for it and uh it's also the model for 
most films that deal with the story of a powerful man's rise and fall, it's basically always going to be addressed in some way. You can see it in, mm. for example, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Mm. Uh, you can see it in The Social Network. There's no getting around it. It's it's always it's always going to be present. It was it was the film that sent that model. And you'll always see that. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't think that there will be anything that rivals it because movies suck now. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sadly. was 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 there will be blood maybe the last great uh, American businessman story? Uh, I I don't yeah. know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, they, I mean that that film about uh, yeah. Roy Brock and McDonald's fucking sucked. So I mean, you know, oh, I Michael Keaton. <laughs> Yeah, that was it. Was it was I didn't so see it. Yeah. it was boring and flat. I mean, there will be blood. Is uh, I I I regard as probably certainly more poignant and more uh, more hard hitting than Citizen Kane, but one of the great films about American business and American yeah. business. Oh, life. That was a great. That was a I mean, great there movie. have been really good like Margin Call. Oh yeah, uh, kicked ass. Um, there were. A couple of uh, films in that kind of genre. There's a lot of these kind of smaller films, and they have to be smaller films right. because the the economics of Hollywood are such that you can make you can make profitable blockbusters, you can make profitable horror movies, and you can make cheap. And only marginally unprofitable money laundering ventures that you use as an excuse to play artist for a while and build your your sort of brand portfolio. Hmm. But really, you don't get anything else. Like, there's no there's no uh, market for kind of the like you know fifty million dollar drama with an original script. Like that just doesn't exist anymore. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, there there really is not a great amount of original films being made. I, I would, you know, it seems like series and 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 uh, TV shows seem to be where more of the original drama content goes. Um, but I, I I don't really understand maybe why we're at this point where American film has descended so much from uh, the era of Citizen Kane. And, and for every There Will Be Blood and Margin Call, um, we get, you know, 300 or 400 terrible films that... Um, well, are, it's, the, it's like, okay, apparently the latest Adam Sandler wasn't that bad, but I put him in the category uh, of not yeah, giving... it was. It. Well, I didn't Wait, see it. I, I won't the, see are it. Are you, are you talking about the, uh, the Diamond the film? Rough or cuts. The, uh, the two uh The two Jennies or whatever. I don't even want to know what that is, but no. Anyway, main point is that guys like him—they're hacks. They're really just hacks. And then you've got all the Marvel mystery bullshit movies that have come out, and they're terrible. I mean, it's really the lowest comp. I mean, I, I saw this chart, and you've all seen it before, but it, it just came across my feed again. You know, world like average IQ from you know nineteen hundred to today, it's just dropped a, a full ten points, and it, 
I, I can't really explain why the movies are so terrible any other way. It's like the, the audience has gotten dumber. It's, it's gotten more global. Uh, it's gotten more politically correct because of that. And so the, the topic, the topic breadth has shrunk to really, really low banal stuff. And it's, it's terrible. I will say like there, there are, it's a, it's a genre that for whatever reason, there's enough, uh, people that are looking for something interesting and original and well done that there's just constantly good stuff coming out in the the sort of loosely construed horror genre yeah that's uh you know for instance all like the last four movies or something that nicholas cage has been in they're all these like small sci-fi horror movies, and they've all been fantastic. Well, there was a there was a great movie that like bombed at the theaters. I don't know why. Uh, I think it was rated R, but Underwater, and it was it was basically about like a like a deep un deep sea underwater uh, drilling rig, and it basically has a failure. Oh, and, I think I saw the preview for this in a theater. I, mean, it was, I thought it was a I watched it on a whim one night while working, but I was like, wow, this is like a good sci-fi movie. This is actually really kind of scary. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it just, it flopped. And <laughs> no one, no the trick about it. horror movies is that you got to make them cheap. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you don't get aesthetics out of them because it's uh it is just use a lot of lighting like that's like really well the, the conventions of it allow you to get away with like you it's really difficult to make a cheap uh well you, you can't make a cheap blockbuster definitionally because like you got to throw a bunch of shit on the screen mm-hmm. i don't know why it costs a billion dollars or whatever to make things that are just like slap together cgi where you can't tell what the fuck is going on it's like just half the resolution speed it up by 2x and like nobody will know what the fuck is going on still and will be a lot cheaper don't have to buy as many render farms but like the the conventions of the horror genre of being able to get away with doing less and you know the the kind of uh the idea that oh we never have the monster for more than like 20 minutes in the whole movie or it gets stale versus something like avengers whatever avengers <laughs> 1 through 19 it's like throw that shit on the screen that's what people paid 20 bucks to see this thing yeah i mean there, there's a there's a famous i just want to say <laughs> speaking of famous Well, I, I'm a little disappointed, you know, as I, as I look at the, you know, the conditions of the world around me, man, I, I'm coming to my great disappointment in life. And that's that, you know, I won't be able to die in my pleasure dome surrounded by my decaying empire after having alienated everyone who ever cared about me. And I can't say, you know, that sunny dome, those caves of ice. And all those who should see them there and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread. For he on honeydew hath fed 
and drunk the milk of paradise. That's all he really wanted out of life was love. That's Charlie's story, how he lost it. He just didn't have any to give. Everything else, the principal as well as all money's earned, is to be administered by the bank in trust for your son Charles Foster Kane until he reaches his 25th birthday. You're going to live with Mr. Thatcher from now on, Charlie. You're going to be rich. One item on your list intrigues me, the New York Inquirer. A little newspaper I understand be acquired in a foreclosure proceeding. Please don't sell it. I'm coming back to America to take charge. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. Good look at it, Jedediah. It's gonna look a lot different one of these days. People will think... What I tell them to think. He happens to be the president, that's a mistake that will be corrected one of these days. That's why he did everything. That's why he went into politics. It seems we weren't enough. He wanted all the voters to love him. With one purpose only, to point out and make public the dishonesty, the downright villainy of boss Jim W. Getty's political machine. If anybody else that say was gonna happen to you would be a lesson to you. I'm going to send you to Zig Zig! Zig Zig, Dennis! Dennis!